0: Happy Sabbath, Corona Church. Okay, that would have been okay if I was far away and I couldn't really hear you. So let me try it again. Happy Sabbath. Sabbath. Amen. Because when you were singing, I could hear you. Maybe uh, you are still enthralled by that beautiful blessing and song that Paulette just shared with us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And I come in the name of the Lord this morning I want to first thank Elder Tabor uh, for the opportunity to stand in this desk this morning, and um, thankful for Josie for um, giving my name in, recommending me to come. She actually preached for me last night, and she's preaching for two more Friday nights, so it almost feels like I'm finally repaying her for all the times I make her come and, and share a word with us at Loma Linda. One slight correction, I am not the associate chaplain for the medical center. I am actually the associate campus chaplain. I've been serving at Loma Linda for the past eight years. Next week begins my ninth year of ministry there. And I continue to be blessed and thankful for the privilege and opportunity of serving. Paulette, haven't you sung for us at SOMA? Yes, awesome, because you're not one of my students, right? You just keep getting dragged into being part of the worship team. Thank you. So I have some connection to the Corona Church through the ministry of Josie and Paulette, and um, if you would turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 13, we're going to spend some time going over this story this morning, uh, which was a new one to me when I was looking for a Jesus story to teach and to preach. So look, go to Luke chapter 13, and we're going to be going through verses 10 through 17. Now, I have to just tell you, and you have to tell me, if this makes you uncomfortable, if I ask you to talk back to me, will that make you uncomfortable? Mm. So you're okay with talking back. All right, so let's practice. If you agree with something that I say, say amen. amen. All right. Now, you can use other phrases like praise the Lord, hallelujah, well, mm mm-hmm, you can use all of those, right? I just need you to know that it's okay to talk back to me. Now, if you don't want to talk to me, that's all right, because I'll do it all by myself here in the pulpit with the Holy Spirit. So we'll go to Luke 13. If you found it, say amen. And let's begin.
1: What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Sing with me. Oh, precious is that blood that makes me white as snow. No other fountain I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus. It is only the
0: blood jesus that allows me to stand in this pulpit this morning to declare a word and i'm thankful father for the invitation to speak and it is my desire to lift you up jesus and i know that you will draw everyone unto yourself and so we bring our hearts to you united because of the blood that you shed on calvary for our sins and this morning as we spend some time in scripture reflecting On your example and your words, may we once more be washed anew in the blood of Calvary and may we be changed, not just so that we can be comfortable in our changed state, but so that we would then go tell somebody about you and the access that they have to you because of Calvary. This we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. So the story we find in Luke chapter 13 is a story that in my opinion gives us four faces of Jesus. In 2000, Robert McIver penned a book called The Four Faces of Jesus, four gospel writers, four unique perspectives, four personal encounters, one complete picture with the title of his book that described how the four gospels reflect the different aspects of Jesus' ministry. Now, over the past six years, I have been reading the Gospels as a part of my daily reflection time with God. I have gone through Matthew, I've gone through Mark, I've gone through Luke, and I've gone through John. And I can concur with MacIver that each of the Gospels does give us a unique perspective about Jesus. And this morning, I'm not quite sure what your impressions are of Jesus. And if I were to take a poll, there would be some some things that we would agree on in our descriptors. We would say he is our savior. We would say he is a healer. We would say teacher. And yet there are others who might present a different aspect about him that we may not agree on or may not have yet experienced. So as I've spent this time working through the Gospels, I must admit that Luke is my favorite of the four gospel writers. He is the one that draws me in time and time again. And it was to my chagrin that this passage of scripture that we're reflecting on this morning was not a story that was on my radar. Somehow in my reading and rereading Luke, I simply missed it. Has it ever happened to you? You think you know a topic, you think you know someone, you think you know a subject really well, and then lo and behold, something crops up and gives you a moment of pause. Well, that's what this story did for me. And in this book of Luke, where Jesus seems to be doing what he always does, I'm drawn to four faces, if I would borrow this term from MacIver. There are four faces of Jesus in this story, and the four faces are rabbi, healer, chronicler, rebel. Rabbi, healer, chronicler, and rebel. You might ask, why have I chosen these words? Can four words adequately describe who the I am is? I readily admit they do not, yet I propose that these four words this morning not only tickle your minds, but also challenge your own reflections and mine on or about Jesus. So when we're reading through Luke's account of Jesus, it's filled with the mounting tension between Jesus and the religious elite. And it helps me to better understand the animosity and the anger that met him in Pilate's court that fateful day when his people, the ones he had come to save, cried out, give us Barabbas, and he said nothing. So I submit these four words to you, not to diminish what he, has come, what he came to do, but to challenge our reflection on who we ought to be as his followers. It is important to look at Jesus through the lens of his story we need to look at the context, the circumstances, the community, and experience the sights and sounds to ensure that our decision to follow Jesus is not just an emotional or a rational one. We must be clear that in choosing to associate with this Jesus, that we are also prepared to be like Jesus. Faith by association is not enough. It's not enough to be a Seventh-day Adventist Christian. You have to be a Christian Seventh-day Adventist. Uh, Yeah. Uh Uh-huh. Your Christianity must be what people see first. Faith by association is not enough. Our faith must be the result of a committed, growing, personal relationship with Jesus Christ. I don't know when it was the last time you looked at Jesus. I mean, for real, looked at him. For real. I mean, like, read through scripture and saw how he interacted with people because it will mess you up. It has messed me up. Hmm. yeah. So we'll start. And he was, what was he doing? Teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. So we find Jesus in a familiar place, doing a familiar thing. It was his custom after his baptism by his cousin John and the anointing by the Holy Spirit in the Jordan River, after his time in the wilderness where he defeated Satan, to go spend time in the synagogue. That's what he did. Now the synagogue was the place that in within the Judeo Judeo-Judeo culture where the men and women of God gathered for worship. It wasn't the temple. It was it was located in different parts of the land. And in the synagogue there was no altar and prayer and the reading of the Torah took the place of the sacrifice. You remember that the children of Israel had been taken into captivity, and when they came back from captivity, they created all these different spaces and places called synagogues to worship. Now, Luke does not refer to Jesus as rabbi. He actually uses the Greek word epistates, the equivalent of schoolmaster, a term more meaningful to his predominantly Greek readers because Luke, when he wrote the account of Jesus, wrote it for the Greeks to understand, so he doesn't use rabbi. Matthew uses rabbi, rabbi wrote for the children of Israel, for the Jewish people to understand who Jesus was. It doesn't matter whether you call him an epistates or you call him a rabbi. He he did both. He was the teacher. Those who listened to Jesus took note of the authority with which he read and taught from the scriptures. Often the rabbis or master teachers would refer to Moses as they would expound on the text, but Jesus would often say, I say to you. That created a problem, you can imagine, for all those who were watching and listening. Who is this dude? Isn't he Mary and Joseph's son? I mean, you know, he was born. We aren't even sure about his birth and his lineage. How does he come in here at 30 years old telling us, and I say? When we gather each week at our synagogues, We submit to the teaching of the scripture from our rabbis and our master teachers. However, Jesus also invites each of us to become like him. We must become master teachers of the scripture, not just in the meeting place of the believers, but also in our homes and other places and spaces that he provides for us. As Christ followers, it is not just the call of the pastor, the elder, or the Sabbath school teacher to teach about Jesus. We are all commissioned to teach the world about Jesus through the Word of God, and we're commissioned to do it with power and authority. Matthew chapter 28 All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples. Who should make disciples? Just the disciples or all those who say they're disciples? Talk to me. All of us. I'm glad somebody said, All of us. Me. You, we are all called, and Jesus promised that as we go and make disciples, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that he commanded. Lo, I am with you, sometimes, always, even to the end of the age. We have it. And I wish, I really wish, that the church of God would take that command really seriously. I wish we would start having conversations about Scripture with people. We don't need to take them to Revelation first. Can we just talk about Jesus? Amen floors. Amen ceilings. How many of you, if you are going to be truthful this morning, are comfortable having a conversation about Jesus from Scripture? We're not why aren't we? Is it because we're ashamed? No. We're afraid. Am I speaking the truth? Why are we afraid? We don't want to be called names. We don't want to be seen as weird or odd. Well, we're already weird and odd. We, we believe in Jesus, right? So we might as well just go ahead and just be labeled weird and odd. But what if our interaction with scripture And the infilling of the Holy Spirit helped us to actually be like Jesus. What would happen? Let's see in the story. So there's this woman who for 18 years had had a sickness caused by a spirit and she was bent double and could not straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, woman, you are free from your sickness. And he laid his hands on her and immediately she was erect and began glorifying God. This woman is unique among all the women gathered for worship this Sabbath morning. Why? Because she's bent Double and she can't straighten up, and this condition has been her lot for the past 18 years. So, because we're pretty visual, I'm gonna show you what she looked like. What does, look like? What does community look like from that angle? When someone says happy Sabbath to you, when you're for 18 years. What does life look like for you? And it doesn't appear that this woman is a stranger to the congregation. She's not a visitor. (laughs) She fits right in. It is Jesus who notices her. The people don't react to her being bent over. You know, sometimes we are bent over from sin, we're bent over from frustration, we're bent over from pain, from anger, from hurt, and we just fade into the surroundings. We're so used to being bent over, or we're so used to seeing people bent over, it doesn't cause us to stop and go, Why in the world are you bent over? Hmm. But Jesus, when he sees her, he goes from being a rabbi and teacher to becoming a healer. There's no announcement of this change. It's a seamless transition. His interaction and several others reflect the role Isaiah prophetically articulated as the Messiah, being the one who would have the spirit of the Lord upon him, anointed him to preach the good news to the poor Jesus, when he read this text, he said, I have been sent to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus doesn't need anybody's permission to do something for this woman's situation because he understood who he was and what he had come to do. He sees her, he calls her over and fulfills this scripture before those who are watching. And I am convinced that Jesus will, teach about his father when there are people who are sick or enslaved to the bondages of sin in his presence? He won't do it. How can we talk about God when we are sitting here locked up and watching everybody else be blessed and we're sitting here locked up, doubled over? Can you see her? Jesus says, woman, come here. And she shuffles over in her bent position to Jesus. And he says to her, you are free from your ailment. And then he places his hands on her and she stands up straight as she is healed. Why does Jesus touch this woman? Have you ever wondered why Jesus touches people? He who speaks things into existence, why does he get his hands dirty? Why does he spit in mud and put mud on people's eyes? Why does he touch the leper? Why does he touch this woman? Well, if there's anybody here who does anything with science, they would tell you that this skin is our largest organ, and when its sensory receptors are stimulated, the hormone oxytocin, the one that makes us feel good, is released. At the same time, cortisol, the stress hormone, is reduced. I think Jesus touches this woman to make her feel good. Having been bent over for 18 years, living in a society that believed that when you were barren or sick, it was because you sinned or your daddy or your mama sinned. Nobody touches you. No one hugs you. No one comes near to you as if your thing is going to jump off on them. And yet she kept coming to the synagogue. Jesus just touches her because it makes her feel good and welcomed Where are the healers in Corona Church? Have you met them? Are you one of them? Where are the people who see the sick and bound ones in our midst and speak a word of healing or offer a healing touch? The reason we haven't seen the healers is perhaps because we suffer from eye disease. See, I I have glasses on. They're actually bifocals. (laughs) That's just a season of my life. I didn't understand how much I loved my eyesight till I didn't have it much. You can't feel it, but the deterioration of the optic nerve, oftentimes with elevated eye pressure, can silently steal our sight. It's a condition called glaucoma. There may be no symptoms until central vision is lost following the gradual loss of peripheral vision. So we get regular eye exams, and they're critical in order for us to figure out and find out the glaucoma. When I turned 40, my eye doctor said, okay, we're gonna dilate your pupils. I'm like, what happens when you turn 40? How come you didn't tell me? Hey, what are young people? Listen here, eat your carrots, take care of your eyesight because 40 is a magical number. All manner of things come your way, nobody told me. You start feeling pain you didn't feel before for no reason. And I hear there's more to come. Anybody can say amen? There's more to come. So just so you know, I don't want to be 20. You know, they say 40 is a new 20. I don't want to be 20 ever again. Amen. I'm glad I was over that 20 stuff. I want your energy. (laughs) Hallelujah. But I don't want to be 20 again. But when my doctor said he was going to dilate my pupils, I was like, what? What What is that? It's a sign that I'm getting older. And he wanted to start checking for glaucoma in my vision. We have spiritual glaucoma. We are blinded from the maladies of our brothers and sisters in Christ because those who are ill also contribute to our blindness because they wear a mask, that Sabbath mask. The one where you put on every Sabbath morning when you walk out the house and you come into the house of God. You all could be fighting all the way from the house to the parking lot of the church. And as soon as you get into the parking lot and close their happy Sabbath, Happy Sabbath, happy Sabbath, happy Sabbath. No one really knows what's going on. We don't share, we don't tell, we keep it a secret as if we get some reward for suffering alone. Then why are we in the family of God? Is it any wonder why our young people leave? Because Being in a dysfunctional family is not a problem if everybody owns the dysfunction. Come on, somebody. Because if you admit there's a dysfunction, we go, all right, we can start. But when you pretend that there is nothing wrong, why will they stay? They won't stay. Spiritual glaucoma creeps up on us unaware when our central vision, Jesus, is lost and we gradually lose sight of each other and focus only on ourselves. It is therefore important that we too get regular eye exams. Not E-Y-E, but I, the letter I. We have to get regular eye exams so that we don't become blinded to those in our midst who are in need of Jesus's healing touch through us. And you know what I love about Jesus? He corrects this kind of vision very, very easily and quickly. We simply have to say, Jesus, give me new vision, and we can see. Have you experienced someone with the gift of healing? They are present in the people who greet us with Sabbath hugs or pray with us when we ask for prayer. Not later, but right there on the spot. Amen. Because you know you're not going to remember. Okay, you remember. I won't. <laughs> so if you don't see me put it in my phone or write it on a piece of paper, I'm not going to remember unless the Holy Spirit brings it back to me amidst all the myriad of things that I have to do. But when you ask me to pray, don't be surprised if I say, let's pray right now. Why not? Where two or three are gathered in his name, he is in the midst. Healers are the people who will pray with you on this spot and pray for you later. Healers are the people who listen to our fears, our challenges, our worries, and our doubts. They are the people who discern when we are wearing a mask or putting on a good show so that no one will see us as we really are. Our churches should be full of healers. Because we have met the healer himself. And if you are healed, then you get to be a part of the healing process in other people's lives. People aren't gonna join our churches if we continue to run around acting as if everybody is okay. We're not! hmm We're not okay. If we were okay, we would be in heaven. Hello. This world would have been done already. We're not okay. All of us are striving, pressing towards the mark of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. All of us are pushing, fighting against our flesh, fighting against generational stuff that we've inherited from our grandfathers and our grandmothers how many generations ago. All of us have sinned and continue to sin and fall short daily of the glory of God. But thanks be to God, we know where to go. So this church is full of healers. And some of you need to stop holding on to the healing that you are holding on to that belong to people in this church. Do you know that there are people who come here from week to week that need to hear your story? And that if they had heard your story, some of the stuff they're going through, they would have let it go a long time ago? Because when they see you, they think you've got it together. Quick story. I lived in New York. I became a Seventh-day Adventist Christian in New York City. I was 19 years old. And I lived in that, grew up in that church, got baptized in that church. And I wasn't one of those people who didn't know Jesus. My mother, I went to church. I read the Bible a lot. Henceforth, when Jesus said to me, come join this group, I was able to say, yep, I got it. And I came. And I remember they had a lot of things to say to me about going to the parties, going to the club, what we do on Sabbath. Amen, anybody? Mm-hmm. But they didn't have a whole lot to say to me about how I grew as a woman of God. They could tell me all the things not to do, but not what to do. And hear me well, young people. If it's only your Sabbath school lesson that's going to keep you with Jesus, you are not going to make it. It is a personal, intentional pursuit and acceptance of his call every single day. It is falling down, bruising your knees, getting your face chipped up, your teeth. You're just going to be messed up. But as long as you keep following him, he restores everything. That's how you're going to make it. And I remembered when I got married and I desired to be a mother of some children and I miscarried. No one had said anything to me about what that looked like because we don't talk about that in church. Mm Mm-hmm. So then where am I supposed to learn that? Oh, you say my mother should have told me that. Well, what if I didn't have her? How do you deal with the emotional and spiritual sense of loss? Who supports the husband who goes through that, who has no idea what to do because his wife is crazy because she has hormones running through her body and she's crying one minute and mad the next? Oh, the women in this church didn't have that. Okay. <laughs> and I remembered being invited to preach at my church for a women's, for women's Day, for Mother's Day, actually. And I asked my husband, can I talk about us having a miscarriage? And he said, yes, you can have that conversation. And I talked about it. And you wouldn't believe how many women came to me after church and said, thank you. There was one woman who I had known her since I was 19. I was now in my 30s, and she goes, "Dillis, I miscarried six times, I told my husband I'm not doing it again. I saw her every single week and did not know for years that she carried that pain. Another woman said to me, I'm so glad you said something about it, because when we get married, everybody keeps going. When are you going to have a baby? When are you going to have a baby? When are you going to have a baby? And they didn't know if I miscarried that week. Well, how would they know if we didn't say something? How would we know how to love you and support you and be there with you? We don't know if we don't talk. And in truth, we're all wounded healers. There is no healer that has got it so together that they are immune to pain. And that's what makes Jesus' call for us to be healers so important. None of our children should grow up going to Corona Seventh-day Adventist Church thinking that everybody that comes here has it together don't do that to them because when they go out in the world and the world is just simply walking out of your house (laughs) when they walk out and they fall and their knees get bruised they need you and I to walk alongside them to say hey even in the midst of this rough patch Jesus is with you he will carry you You know that song we sing under his wings I'm safely abiding that song means nothing means nothing until you're hurt amen walls and floors. Those songs mean nothing until you're going through something. You and I are the healers that God has placed within our congregations, and the healers need to start speaking up. Jesus is calling us to participate in this role. He wants us to be uneasy when we encounter those who are crippled with anger, fear, abuse, envy, or pride. Jesus wants to interrupt our worship, study, or spiritual remonstrations when we are surrounded by those who have been under the bondage of Satan's attacks. Who knows? Jesus may even give some of us the gift of healing where we get to participate with him in the miraculous deliverance of men, women, boys, and girls from physical and spiritual sickness. And what happens when Jesus touches this woman? There's yet another adjustment made to the order of service. He goes from being an expositor of scripture and a miraculous healer, and now we experience praise and worship like you've never seen before. Because I'm telling you something, when we walk in here and we sing songs, we sing them differently when Jesus has done something in our lives, do we not? So can you imagine the woman as she now starts to declare the praises of God? Because she was no longer bent over double, she is now standing up. No one was going to shut her down. She worships with all of her might. But the official of the synagogue, verse 14, became indignant because Jesus had not only <laughs> he had healed on the Sabbath, And he began saying to the crowds in response, there are six days in which to work should be done. So come during them and get healed and not on the Sabbath. This indignant response leads me to believe that nothing this miraculous had ever happened in the synagogue before. Why wasn't it happening on a more on a more regular basis? The same reason I asked why aren't miracles happening during the times when we gather each Sabbath morning to read scripture and pray together. It can't be because there aren't any people among us who are sick or doubled over under the attack of Satan because we're living in this world. The answer to the question is reflected in the synagogue ruler's retort. Healing is work and it should be done on the days one through six. Can you imagine that scene? Get your 3D glasses and your high D minds on. Can you imagine sitting in a synagogue, watching Jesus tell this woman, woman, you are free, and she stands up and she starts praising God. And the synagogue ruler goes, dude, you can't do that in here. What are you thinking? Son, there are like six days you could have come and done that. What are you doing? Do you, he's telling he who spoke things into existence, he who created on one, two, three, four, five, six, and said rest. He just told him, you can't do that. Whoo! Can you imagine if it was back in the day when God was opening up the earth and swallowing people up? (laughs) Huh? I mean, we can look at the story and reflect on it, but don't you understand the synagogue ruler's passion? Don't you understand where he's coming from? I get him. I understand him. Come on, dude, you're messing up the service. We got to go. Got stuff to do. Why are we doing it? Why are we doing this? But he's confused as to what worship is supposed to be about. And so what does Jesus do? <laughs> what only he could do, he starts telling stories, and he becomes the chronicler. The chronicler is the one who tells the story. And if you look at Luke 13 again in verse 15, the Lord answered him and said, You hypocrite, does not each of you in the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it, and give it, lead it away to give it water? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years long, be set free from this bondage on the Sabbath day? It's as if Jesus says, if we're going to be historical, let's be consistent. And he takes him back to Deuteronomy because, you know, he was the one who told Moses what to write in the first place. So you're going to come and chastise me about what I do. Let me take you back, son. Let me school you. (laughs) Sit at my feet. And if you look at Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 4, this is what God told the children of Israel through Moses. You shall not see your countryman's donkey or his ox, fallen down on the way and pay no attention to them, you shall certainly help him to raise them up. And in Exodus 23 verses four and five, if you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey wandering along, you shall surely return it to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying helpless under its load, you shall refrain from leaving it to him. You shall surely release it with him. So if your enemy's animals are in trouble, what is your responsibility? You're supposed to do what? Is a human being who was doubled over under attack from Satan for 18 years of more value or less value than a donkey or an ox? Jesus, the chronicler, sets him straight. On Sabbath, oxen and donkeys were to be untied and led to water. How much more this daughter of Abraham... So Jesus explains to them once and for all, you need to understand what I said to Abraham and what I said to Moses. Because this woman had not been called or reminded that she was indeed a daughter of Abraham because of her disease and her sickness. I'm a chronicler and so are you. Often we chronicle the wrongs we have committed against others or God and we have a good history of the hurts people have done to us. Some of us can trace our family connections within the context of Adventism back several generations and some of us are new to this whole Adventist thing or maybe even new to Christianity. But Jesus challenges us to write a new history of our lives one that begins on the day when we accept what he did on Calvary to deliver us from the bondage of sin. And we don't have to compare how sinful we are to each other. Instead, we should reflect on what God has done for all of us and what he wants to do for so many more. So once we're clear about our story, we will be able to fully comprehend God's love for this planet. And it gives him the freedom to move through us and sharing this plan with the world. It also empowers us, God bless you, sis. It also empowers us to write news stories which reflect a Savior who is alive and working in our world today. All right, I know you all get out church soon, so I'm going to wrap it up. But can I say something to them? I'm going to say something to them. Y'all can listen. Yo, you all are there. There you go. My little ones. I didn't see you all. Let me talk to you. Y'all can listen. We live in a world where everyone likes to point out what's wrong with the world. But the Bible teaches us that God loves the world. John 3, 16 doesn't say God loves the church. Right? Y'all want to check me on You want to go look at it? Who does God love? You sure? How many people in the world are you friends with? Somebody said lots. You ain't friends with them, come on. You don't wanna be friends because you're scared out your wits that if you're friends, you're gonna become like them. Let's be truthful. But scripture says God loves the world. So how does the world get to know that God loves them? Through who? Huh, us. When we start telling our stories. And my little young men right here, What's the worst thing you probably did? Just didn't obey something like your parents told you to come in and you didn't do it or you, you just, yeah. So you're figuring, what's the story that I can tell? You just simply tell the people you come in contact with, the kids you play with in the park or whoever's house you go over. That's it's if, if we have friends who don't all, aren't already all Adventists. You know what I mean? So if we have friends who aren't Adventists, we get to talk to them about Jesus. And it doesn't have to be a long story You just say, you know what? I love Jesus. And they go, really? Who is Jesus? I'm glad you asked. It's as simple as that. Amen. Because God loves this world. And he wants to save the world. Yes, he happens to love the church too. And he loves the remnant. But I think he loves the world a lot more. Because he died on the cross for the world. And the world's impression of us, mm. when you go home, go on Google, and I want you to do this. I want everybody who can Google to do this. Type in, why are Christians so, and put the letter A in, and look at everything people say about Christians. Then I want you to write, why are Christians so, put the letter B, and watch how it auto-populates. Why are Christians so, go through the alphabet. Go through the alphabet because I'm going to guarantee you when you put an L for why are Christians, is not, loving is not the first word that comes up. When you type in why are Christians and you put letter F, forgiving is not the word that first comes up. God says that he loves the world. How will the world know God if we don't tell our story and we don't tell the world that no, you too can be a son and daughter of Abraham You too are invited to be a part of the family of God. So the last face of Jesus, we've talked about him being a rabbi teacher, a healer, a chronicler. The last word I used to describe him is rebel. Jesus is a rebel. When Jesus refers to this woman as a daughter of Abraham, it brings the entire gathering back to the realization that she who was in bondage has now been truly set free. And what do the the opponents of him, what does the synagogue ruler do when Jesus says this? Verse 17 says, when he said this, all his opponents were put to shame and the entire crowd was rejoicing at all the wonderful things he was doing. Silence, joy, that's the response. It is my belief that Jesus rebels against the Jewish expectation of who the Messiah should be. The descendants of Israel were looking for a savior, and they were preparing to receive one who would be a warrior king. They were looking for a warrior. They wanted to see Rome overthrown. They wanted to see Israel taken back to the days of David and Solomon, where their enemies were subdued. That's who they were looking for. One Bible commentator, R.P. Martin, states, Yet everything about Jesus' ministry controverted their understanding of who the leader would be. Instead, Jesus tried to instill in their minds the prospect that the road to his future glory was bound to run by the way of the cross, cross with its experience of rejection, suffering, and humiliation. It is in Luke that we see this tension between Jesus and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the priests. And even the common people, they're looking for a champion, they're looking for a warrior, they're looking for a fighter. And Jesus time and time again disappoints them by his association with sinners and his willingness to break the rules. And yet the descendants of Abraham was not Jesus' main target. His insurgency was primarily against the kingdom of Satan. The story reflects his unwillingness to allow Satan to hold any son or daughter of Abraham hostage. In freeing this woman, he foreshadowed how he would ultimately free all humanity once and for all from sickness, death, hell, and the grave. Where are the Christ followers who understand that this is the purpose for our redemption? It is not simply that we are saved and need to stay saved. We are part of an army of believers who are declaring that business as usual is unacceptable for this planet. It is not okay for sin to abound. It's not okay. And it's not okay to just simply look down our noses and go, oh, those are sinners. We are sinners saved by grace. Jesus calls us to be rebels, rebels against Satan, sin, and the status quo. And what is the status quo? An interpretation and understanding of whom God is that is not vibrant, growing, or progressive. We must not fall into the trap of believing that we have a complete knowledge of the revelation of God. We must leave room for the Holy Spirit to do new things and give us new experiences. We must also be open to have him work through us to do new things. We have Jesus and we need to share him with the world. Will you become a teacher? I hope you will, Corona Church, because we cannot be satisfied with listening to messages week after week which keep us preoccupied and with interpreting the signs of the times which are important or cause us to be like the synagogue leader, so preoccupied with defending God's law at the cost of the deliverance and healing of the walking wounded who God leads into our midst. We must become the teachers who live, whose lives reflect a submitted and dependent life centered in Jesus. Will you become a healer, Corona Church? I hope you will. Because healing is not reserved for those who are most spiritual amongst us. James 517 cautions us to call for the elders and become intercessors. There is no reason for us to wonder if we can pray for healing or deliverance from those who are under Satan's attacks, strongholds, and cast out demons. I'm so sick and tired of us letting people think that Satan is stronger than Jesus. You know that Jesus is stronger. Y'all know that? Do you, do you know that? Anything Satan brings, Jesus can do him. Jesus already did him dirty. Like when he was in the, in the wilderness, when Satan came at him, what did Jesus do to him? Talk to me, what did he do? Did he go, oh Satan, I'm so afraid of you? He said, man, get behind me. He rebuked him. When Jesus was on the cross and those mocked and tried to get him to come down, he didn't respond. He talked to his father. But you know, when he showed up, First day of the week. Death, done. Jesus is more powerful than anything Satan can bring your way. Do you hear me? And yes, I'm yelling at you. (laughs) I'm yelling so you hear me. Do you hear me? Thank you, baby. (laughs) Thank you. And don't you ever forget it. He is more powerful than anything Satan can unleash in this world. And Satan understands that he has no power and that his kingdom is, de- is falling apart. But we keep acting as if he has something to stand on. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Oh, Lord Jesus, help me. Will you begin to chronicle a new story? I hope you will. It isn't enough, enough for us to be chroniclers of the Judeo-Christian faith where we can repeat with accuracy the history and purposes and doctrines of our denomination. It most certainly isn't enough for us to be able to articulate our Christian experience through the lens of Adventism with with prophetic clarity. It is important. But we don't get stars because we knew the doctrines and kept them. We get stars because we bring people to Jesus. Y'all don't even know about the stars. Y'all know about the stars in the crown? How many of y'all know about the stars in the crown? Raise your hand real quick, real quick. Somebody needs to talk about what that means. And stars in the crown is not just you mentioning something about Jesus. Hello, somebody. It's actually journeying with someone till they come to know this Jesus. Will you join in the rebellion? I hope you will We must rebel against doing church the way we've always done it. We must not fall into the trap of Abraham's sons and daughters where we believe that God isn't moving because of something we haven't done. God is moving on this planet. And we need to say, Holy Spirit, show me where you're moving so I can get there too. Jesus' first advent revealed that he came in the fullness of time and he will return in the fullness of time. What we do with our time is what we will be judged on. Will we set up rules and regulations to preserve the integrity of the remnant? Or will we ask the leader, Yeshua, the Messiah of the remnant, what he wants us to do and then obey? Maybe, Corona Church, if we became rabbis, healers, chroniclers, and rebel, then our Sabbath gatherings would become a time and place for healing, deliverance, praise, and worship not just the place we show up, because we've gotten the day right. Let's pray together. Rabbi, Yeshua, healer, Yeshua, chronicler, Yeshua, the rebel of the universe, Yeshua. Please bear out in each and every single one of us, your character, your passion for this planet. Make Corona Church uneasy, Lord God, with just gathering here and not impacting their neighborhoods, their their workplaces, their families. Help us, Lord God, to see as you see those who are bound and bent over and held by Satan. And may we not be afraid, but be emboldened to call on you and ask you to release them from bondage. And Jesus, can we just simply, through your leading, begin to tell the story of how much you love us. And how you have washed us in your blood and changed us. So that when you come, Jesus, we will have people from this planet who we've touched, who we've held and prayed with and prayed for, who also said yes to you. This we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen.